0: In Canada, one woman is killed in a violent act every other day. The spike in domestic violence that began during the pandemic is still on the rise. Numbers in Canada have leapt by 27% since 2019, and in Israel, the situation is just as critical, with 16 Israeli women already murdered this year. True to its mission... CHW is stepping up to support emergency services in Canada and Israel at this critical time. Help CHW empower victims of domestic violence by supporting the 27-hour SOS crowdfunding campaign. From August 22nd to 23rd, every dollar will be quadrupled when you donate online
1: at chwsos.ca.
0: This is Bonjour Chai, the Zoftik Barbie edition. I'm Avi Feingold, and I'm here with Phoebe Meltzbovi. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, what we did on our summer vacation, and a timely conversation with Rabbi Minna Bromberg, the founder of Fat Torah. Phoebe, it's been a while. Or as the it children has, say, it's it been has. a minute.
2: Is that what they say? I believe Is that what so. the children say? Yeah. I have to speak with the children. It has. It has. Well, it's nice to be back. Yes.
0: How's, uh, how's your summer been?
2: Oh, well, let's see. It's been pretty good. Um, we went back home, as it were for me, uh, to New York City with um, my children. And that was an interesting trip because uh, my younger child was, at the time, almost two, less than a week away on the flight back from being two. But she flew as a lap infant.
0: Mm. Which yes, a two-year-old is, um, lap infant is not a, a thing that. Which
2: I is interesting. It's, it's is when the lap infant is having the the airplane potato chips. You you start to wonder if this is really an infant or not. Um, yeah, yeah. But that was fun. It was a fun trip. Um, we got to see um, a lot of my family. I met my other, uh, podcasts, co-host, um, Kat Rosenfield. And I have to mention something that happened there. That's really relevant to our podcast. Can I do so? obviously? Oh, please. Yes. Okay. So Kat and I were sitting on a bench in Washington square park in Manhattan Chatting, talking about the podcast, um, admiring various dogs passing, and so forth, when some young men um, from Chabad were going around asking people if they were Jewish. And we saw them go up to this family, and I don't mean to stereotype, but this was a not particularly Jewish vibe, having extremely blonde family, whatever, that's fine, asked them if they're Jewish, they were not, Okay. They walked right by us, right by us, and just started moving on to the next people. They were talking to men and women. It was. It didn't matter. Whoa, we were just. I, I, our I minds were blown. We the lesson we. What here, is the lesson, Avi? That's lesson what here. I, And then I was is like, that, I have to ask Avi. What is the lesson?
0: When they pull out the yellow stars again, you're going to survive. You'll be fine with that one. You are going to get by. Um, oh,
2: because I'm so obviously Jewish. You're or...
0: <laughs> so, no, you're so like <laughs> that would be survived. That would be the as, other like, way. Aryan
2: or oh, something. very extremely. Yes, it was just we were just we were so um, we were utterly like what why we why are we not being included in this narrative or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that was um, the definitely the silliest um Jewish related thing that happened in New York. But I will say that New York is on the whole, um, Jewy, and I wrote about this on the website, it's it Jewy in a way that I don't know. Maybe parts of Montreal are, um, but certainly none of Toronto is. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was it. Um what about you, Avi? What have you done this summer? Oh my
0: summer? God, so much. Well, you know, we dropped the kids off at camp for the first time ever. Where we had three weeks without kids, um, and we were not in camp. Meaning, like last year, uh, Rachel was away for a month when the same time as the kids were away, but it was in camp, so I had a great time, and I went on a road trip by myself, but this is the first time that we did it together, and we happened to have – we didn't go and do any crazy plans. We didn't do anything huge, but we definitely had a time to, like, exhale. Um, I had a few days myself before I met up with Rachel. We, did, we had a lot of weddings. I did a bunch of weddings. Um, so let's see. I mean, like – I went to this really cool place in Boston called Lair House, which is uh, Yiddish slash German for learning house, which was an old, like a style of like space where you went to learn and in, in the old country. And um, it's a kosher restaurant slash bar with a huge space devoted towards learning and cultural, pro- cultural educational programming. But they have an amazing like bar menu and great sandwiches. Like I had a beet based Reuben, um, which was really cool. So that was that. There was a cocktail. Um, what is a beet multi- based Reuben? Like, it's a Reuben, but it's made with, like, what beets is instead a of the meat. I know I've... Like, I've, pastrami with cheese and, uh, you know, pumpernickel bread. It's okay. some, some, some lettuce and stuff. It's like a, yeah, okay. super sandwich. Okay. Um, they make a vegan chopped liver. They do I will all not, this, I will like, not, stuff. I will from,
2: not yuck your yum.
0: It is... It was it – was as, as far as vegetarian food, it was fairly decent. It was very well made. These people care about their food. The cocktails were top notch. Um, the highlight was, of course, I went into the men's room and who was leering above me in like a massive like poster is Leonard Cohen
2: because <laughs> right, what so would be I better asked, than being ask. leered at by Leonard Cohen in a men's <laughs> so, room
0: so I asked I
2: ask you who is I in the women's you. room because I, I was friends mm-hmm.
0: I'm friends with the manager slash part owner or whatever we're going to call him he's a friend of mine Charlie Schwartz who's not Canadian but he's married to a Canadian and we were sitting at the bar and talking about this and the whole concept of it and uh I asked him so who's in the women's room and he said Hannah Arendt
2: Oh, my goodness. So I, love it. so I
0: was like, okay, that works. That tracks, I guess, sort of similarly. <laughs> um, there's actually, when you walk out of the bathroom, um, there's, you know, those little, remember those old machines where you put in a quarter and you got a little egg with a little tiny toy in there, right? You yes, turn the handle, yes, right? Yes. Um, so they have one of those, but it's for lactate.
2: Oh, my goodness. But I <laughs> right? don't, Lean I've into never, the Jewish thing. I have heard this. I have not in my family at all met a lactose intolerant Jew.
0: Oh, I've met many. Okay, the, I've heard this. Them, I have I mean. heard
2: this stereotype, but like it is just not a thing in in my family. At uh, this all. is and, why. Yeah. This is
0: why the Chabad fa- we, guys just walked right by the, you. Yeah, they, they, they were
2: like, "We know how much milk you have on a regular basis, and we are." We saw that iced latte. Um, Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah, yeah. so I did that. I went to Toronto for a few days. Um, In the span of like a half an hour, I saw three incredibly Jewish license plates in Toronto. Oh, Um, yeah? There was your favorite, right? S-E-I-N-F-L-D.
2: Okay, that's a good one.
0: Right. Um, There was Lachayim 18
2: Okay, that's Um, really good. Yeah, yeah,
0: and then there was 1-H-O-T-B-U-B-I.
2: Oh my goodness! right, and I
0: couldn't i I'm but part of me are you sure like, it's
2: not meant to be a booby.
0: Yes, that's what I, exactly what I was going to okay. say. I was like maybe it's somebody who had a single mastectomy, but she still feels very beautiful. But it's a
2: very nice it's a very right? nice remaining yeah. one. Okay. Yeah. yes, M-
0: maybe that's what it okay. was but but um, but no, that was uh how did you
2: ascertain the
0: the Jewishness of it? It was parked yes. in front of United Bakers.
2: <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. I have other exciting personal news.
0: please tell us okay.
2: One is that while I'm still waiting for the Canadian government's official stamp on it and so forth, I passed my citizenship test.
0: Wow. Woohoo!
2: Woohoo! I studied this. (laughs) I'm not legally allowed to say what's on it. So. It remains a mystery. However, oh, you can't you can't tell me what the questions are. I can't or tell you. I can't tell you anything about the questions. What, but there's a document. It's a 68 page PDF, and you have to study that. That's the way it is. It's the official document. Can to you study. tell me
0: some of the stuff that's on the 68 page document that you would have had to study that was not on the test necessarily?
2: Um, I mean, the document covers history, geography, um, economy, everything. Who all these different Canadian. Uh, whatever leaders, explorers, the structure of the government, everything it's everything about Canada, it's everything you could possibly need to know about Canada, maybe or I don't know. Um, but this was all news to me because I'm gonna let you in on a little secret, which is that in America, you do not study this, you do not study much about Canada. It's like it's the thing above us, it's part of Britain, basically. Don't worry about it, it's cold there. Um, so I learned it all and I studied like crazy. Um, I think. My husband may have thought I was overdoing it a little as like night after night for like two, three nights. I just was like, I, I even, okay, there's an audio version of it. And I went jogging listening to that. I jogged through High Park in Toronto listening to the audio version of the- of <sighs> Multiple Discover, times, you're saying. Oh, no, no. <laughs> of Discover Canada, though. Yeah, so I discovered Canada um, is- Wh- Like, I'm curious something. if I would
0: pass it without studying. Well, having lived I read an life.
2: article about how apparently uh, m- Canadians generally don't. Pass it well, because I, it's like, and it's the same. They, uh, to become a U.S. citizen, you have to do something along these lines. It's like, and I've had friends do this, and it's yeah, I probably wouldn't pass that one.
0: I'm I'm curious. Like I, I wish you could ask me a question, but I'm not going to break the law. I, I know, I know. I,
2: I'm I'm going That's to be a good. law-abiding, hopefully future Canadian citizen. Um, um. So my other bit of news is that I'm writing a book. Ooh, it's uh, about straight women.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: Yeah. It's about female heterosexuality. And I'm going to be uh, finding... Wherever Does that there still are... even exist? Well, that's the point. That's kind of the gist. Does it okay. even still exist? Um, the tentative title is The Last Straight Woman. So it is indeed about, is it obsolete? Is it not? That's not the whole thing, but that it, it will be touched upon. So wherever there's any sort of overlap between things Jewish and things straight women, and there are... I'm here to report some straight Jewish women out there. That's going to come up, maybe.
0: I mean, according to Haredi society, there is no such thing as a non-straight woman or a non-straight well, there man. You go. So, so you that's, know, that's
2: really okay. going to maybe that could just be the yeah. whole focus. Anyways, no,
0: amazing. Um, I wish I could top that, and I can't. I got I got finally got a pair of the bagel dunks. Oh, that was like my that, <laughs> that, that's that was something. that. Was a, but it's not writing a book.
2: <laughs> well, I haven't written the whole book yet. Working on it.
0: Yeah, and before we get to clearly the bigger news that we have done over the past summer. We briefly mentioned uh, a substack that we're starting. Phoebe, uh, can you fill us in a little bit more on this and what we're going to be doing and how we're going to be yeah. working with oh, it? Definitely.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, so yes, there is now a Bonjour High substack, um, sort of a collective effort of us and some other CJNers. Um a newsletter associated with uh, Bonjour High, all things Bonjour Hi. Um, Exactly what it shall evolve to be is a little bit to be determined, but it'll be a way to kind of keep track of what we're doing, keep track of what's on our radar, things like that.
0: Yes, it's So Wonderful. Uh, like a substack is basically a mailing list. You're going to get like your typical weekly emails or multi-weekly whenever we decide that there's stuff that hasn't made it to the podcast or stuff that... Um, isn't big enough or that's just ruminating on our minds, we're going to throw it into the Substack, send it out somewhat regularly. Um, hopefully maybe even put some reader comments back in there. Um, it should be a lot of fun. And building community is what we're always trying to do. And this is just yet another way. H- have we started writing it, Phoebe? Or um, um, I don't
2: think either of us have personally started writing it, but I think it, it does exist. Um, and we
0: intend to maybe in the coming weeks.
2: We, I don't want to make any exact promises of exactly what it's going to be. Yes. But is there, it's 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 happening. It's it's super mysterious and exciting and still underway. But yeah.
0: In the interim, we have both uh, taken our children to see the Barbie movie. I believe.
2: That is correct. That is correct. Um, um, which child or children did you bring to I it? I brought
0: my two younger children, my eleven-year-old okay. and my ten-year-old. Okay. Um, that literally the day it came out like the thursday it was supposed to it came out on the friday mm. the theaters were showing like bumping it up to the thursday we went right away Oh wow. um and uh yeah i i guess the, i get the sense that you brought you yeah, from what the article you read your you brought your old one your yes older one.
2: ancient that my ancient four-year-old old yes. <laughs> yes i figured um, that that the two-year-old would probably well not yet two at the time she would probably not get a whole lot out of any movie but the well she's she's Four and a half, further than four and a half, more like four and three quarters. She did enjoy aspects of the movie. I think some of the political messaging was, um, which we will discuss because it's interesting. Um, maybe, I don't think there was anything inappropriate, but I do think there were things that are just like not of tremendous interest necessarily to a four-year-old. I did not, I am not a four-year-old myself. I did not love this movie. I wanted to, did you- Avi, love this movie. I
0: I had the opposite. I wanted to not love this movie and I came out liking it more than than I thought I would. Hmm. Um, Okay.
2: You go first.
0: Why didn't you like the movie?
2: (laughs) Oh, where to begin? Well, first of all, if the whole point of this is sort of like about sexism and so forth, the sexism it depicts, the patriarchy it depicts, it introduced to my four-year-old a version of events that is far worse than the one in the actual world we live in. Certainly how it is in North America. So the, like the CEOs or whatever at the executives at Mattel in the movie are all these white men. It's this lineup of these white men in suits, right? Or I don't know if they're all white, but they're definitely all men. And it's this idea of like, there's Barbie world where the Barbies are in charge of everything. And they're these sort of, hyper feminine women who have no need for men in any capacity. And then there are these kind of pathetic sort of puppy dog, Ken doll men. Okay. But then in the real world, and that's, um, so the movie has like, there's the Barbie world in the real world. um, Either you've seen it and you know this, or you've been in the culture at all and noticed this. There will be spoilers in this, in this discussion right now. I'm sure there will. If you haven't watched it,
0: know that we can talk about it. Yes. Yes.
2: But the real world is depicted as this place that's like where sort of men control everything in a way that I think introduces that idea to people who would not otherwise have even like, like we were explaining to my daughter that like men and women work in offices that this is not only men and like, I was like, going over the top explaining that like, both of her parents work and like, you know, I mean, I don't personally work in an office, but I still, you know, anyway. Um, So that was one thing. The other thing is that like, there's this kind of this type of feminism that's supposed to be about like embrace it. A lot of this is like reclaim the bimbo. I don't know. Do you remember that movement from a few years ago, reclaim the bimbo?
0: Uh, I don't know those exact words, but okay. I get the sentiment that you're talking Although about. Although it was this. a
2: bunch of different sort of trend pieces and like the Times, New York Magazine, things like that. And also just um, all over the place. This was this thing. So the the Barbie movie kind of comes out of that, this idea that there's nothing lesser about being hyper feminine. Fine. I think that's that's fair to a point. But then this idea that like the representative of woman would be Margot Robbie as a Barbie doll seemed a little um more regressive than progressive and then there's this idea that because people like our good friend ben shapiro hate the idea of the barbie movie or hated the barbie movie itself and did some apparently extremely long youtube about why he hated it that you have to like it to be a good feminist and i think that that's a little silly so that's it but but i did like the dance routines and um on a female heterosexuality note simu liu gets high marks, highest yes. marks as always.
0: <laughs> um so, you know, like I, you know, and as you wrote about this, you said that this is basically just a 2-hour ad for for toys, right? And, it is also that, yes. Yeah, and I went into it thinking that that's what it was going to be, um, and by the end, I started realizing that it wasn't so much, and I was trying to stay away from a lot of the other commentaries, the other, like, takes on it, so maybe a bunch of people are saying this, maybe nobody has said this, but I wanted this just to be my thoughts and uh, what I've been thinking about, Um I get the sense, like, it really wasn't a movie about Barbie, and that was, like, the subversive thing about it, right? It's, it's honestly, like, in my mind, it's more of a movie – hold on. It's more a movie about Ken, right? In oh, the Barbie okay. world, the Kens are the Barbies. And, you know, I sort of empathize with that, like, especially in, like, my personal world, right? I – there's a lot of stuff that I do as the spouse of someone – with a full-time job as a professional woman, right? She's not a woman professionally, but so much of the work that she does is she's often hired, right? Because she does her job and she So your she gets wife covered to in magazines who she, as who a is woman? Your wife? What, yes, what my, wife is, a, what is her my wife is a my okay, wife is yeah, I mean, is I mean, is is Rabah, Rachel Cole Feingold. Um she is a clergy member at a major synagogue in Canada. She's the first woman in Canada to be uh, working in this capacity in an orthodox congregation. And as much as my wife is so much more than just her gender um she often gets you know, ask to do something or, you know, get becomes part of the discussion because she is a woman. Um, And I'm often, you know, praised, admired, my support, my allyship, et cetera, et cetera. I do all this wonderful stuff. And there are times when I feel like as unseen as like Ken was in the movie and I'm not supposed to say something about it because even though it affects my like day-to-day life, that's not what you do as a supportive like spouse. You just, you're out there and you, you know, you support and you move on and I just beach all day. I I don't, but that's like what it sometimes feels like. And I'm not right. And so, right. Like, Hey, white male, right. Keep quiet. This is okay. You've done this for 5,000 years and, uh, it's women's time to do stuff. And so it feels a little bit sometimes like Ken in a Barbie's world and right. I don't know. And this is like, what is lost? How do you feel about
2: horses? How do you feel about horses? I don't like,
0: I don't care so much about horses. Um, but like, you know, I think that what it's trying... The movie, to me, what was trying to get at it is that, you know, that there's something... There are things that are lost when we speak about individual groups and identities, right? When we live in a feminist world, we lose the... Uh, idea that there are things that men contribute as men and not just right and there's a lot of discourse that's coming around lately about like the problem with men or the problem with the problem with men discussions and um, what happens when we try to fit male empathy into a female box or or, or things like that and I've started reading enough articles about this uh, and it's out there Um, but like I'm not here sitting here I'm not don't get me wrong I am not fighting for men's rights and saying that men are being erased or something like that you're not becoming an Andrew
2: Tate groupie
0: I, I am not I'm really really not what I'm trying to say (laughs) is that there are people that are feminist that are doing the work hopefully of what thoughtful feminism is supposed to be that are also getting erased and that are basically you know just because anything I say is perceived as carrying incalculable privilege, and I'm not worthy of anything, right? You know that that's not the right way forward, and I think that that's the message of what's going on: is that some things get lost when you talk about feminism. There are things that get lost when you know you talk about anything as a whole. I mean, Judaism talks about this all the time, right? Th- You know, the message of Judaism is that too much of anything can often be bad, and you constrain sometimes the food that you eat, and you constrain the extremism that you go to, according to. Many many Jews, right? You don't you don't get too religious, you don't get too unreligious, right? There's the Maimonidean golden mean. We talk about this, and there can be sometimes I think something is too much feminism, and that to me was the message of this movie. I, I don't know. Oh, interesting. Like, um, I don't know that anybody else has relates, made exactly that
2: point. Um, does this
0: relate? Does so this I have Avi. I have
2: a. I have a, it is super interesting. I have a few different points to sort of questions, yeah. comments, all of this. So one is that I think they're, you're talking about two things at the same time, which is understandable because they're both happening in your life. One is the stuff to do with gender and feminism and gender roles and all of this. But the other is just simply that in any couple, probably one person is at least at a given time going to be the sort of type A professional person relative to the other. Yeah. And I don't know how much of what you're talking about would be different I guess what you're maybe can I try to rephrase a little bit what you're saying? And you can tell me if this seems right. You're saying that if if you were a woman married to a male rabbi who was kind of a big shot rabbi, there would be this kind of feminist structure for your saying that 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 you feel overlooked and that you know, why why is it never about you kind of thing? And that, that could there there'd be feminism saying, yeah, like you go sister, that's right. Whereas mm-hmm. go if get you're your own job man, and your yes, career. Whereas, and this whereas, and that. Or not yeah. even go get your just sort of like supporting what mm-hmm. your your emotions about this, mm-hmm. your feelings about this. Whereas if you're a man in that situation, it's more like you you should sort of like you're saying you you feel like there's no sort of outlet for you to say that that doesn't seem like you're dis you're you're anti-feminist in some way it doesn't come across as not that you i'm not saying you are but I'm say it would come across your fear is that it would come across as anti-feminist to say to sort of any sort of what about me type thing does that make sense at all
0: The Barbie movie was a satire, right? And that's why there was only men in the boardroom, right? The same way that their women were running literally everything in Barbie world. Yeah. Right? And so, and the highlight of it was to sort of say, look, we actually need a balance, right? In Barbie world, you need Ken's and, and Ken's need to be, you know, the head sometimes of some things. And in the other world you need women around and that's like a big part of what it is and to to live in a world of barbies is just as bad as living in a patriarchal world
2: okay so this gets back to i'm going to talk about the movie itself if barbie world is the world run by women why is there no cellulite why is everybody why why is the main barbie the stereotypical barbie barbie world if it's a Uh, world run by women why is it so sort of over the top for the male gaze?
0: So in my theory of what this okay. is going on about okay. is that clearly um, by the end of the movie, right, who are the people that are really championed and, you know, talked about? It's the Barbies that are like hanging out with the, um, with the Kate McKinnon character. What do, what do they call her again? Weird Barbie. Weird Barbie, the Barbie that you play too much with and ends up a little like funky and paint on the face and all that. Um, right. And all of the misfits are just as much part of the society, right? And fat Barbie. And by the end, it's yes, even though all these other things are marginalized, we need to make these like part of it. And I think that they should have leaned into that a little bit more, even though they did. I mean, they, they they spoke about it, but yes, at the end of the day, stereotypical Barbie is still the protagonist because that's the way the girls play with this, and that's where you are right that this is still a two hour ad for a for a toy but the end of it is not just the the kens and the barbies but it's all the different barbies and all the different types and all the different styles and the idea is you cannot and should not just like you know the problem is having a barbie world but not just having a barbie world but having a barbie world of stereotypical barbies we need all we need everything we need the diversity and that's to me what the message of what this was and it uses kens as an example because right in a world where technically everybody is 50/50 even though in Barbie world there are may, way fewer Kens than there are Barbies um there are many ways in which one can think of how certain groups end up being marginalized um in in a hypothetical world where if a feminist utopia existed right men would feel really bad about it
2: yeah yeah i mean i think i guess with the with the barbies um What I found confusing about the movie, among other things, was you get this, the girl, like the human real world girl, the teenager, tween rather, um, Mm -hmm. who's saying that um, Barbie is, you know, not so good after all. Barbie's fascist, Barbie's sexist, whatever. That makes sense if you're a viewer who knows about Barbie dolls, but it doesn't make much sense if you're actually just watching the movie because the movie presents Barbie world as a place that is diverse where there are, you know, Barbies of color, there are fat Barbies, there's a Barbie in a wheelchair, all of this. And it does, it's, and yet there are sort of constraints. Like there are, there aren't, you know, Barbies outside of a certain age range, whatever. But it's just, it's confusing to me. Like there's just something...
0: I think that you had to presuppose right, yeah. the, the knowledge of Barbie and the general understanding of what Barbies right. are in order right. to walk into this movie and get something out of it. right? right. I think that that's true of a lot of different things. I think sure. you can't read the Bible without having presuppositions about what it's well, supposed to be Often, about. Often
2: confused. But the thing, okay, so can I tell you yeah. the thing that bothered me most about Barbie? The Kens, I agree with you. This is me agreeing with you about the sort of it's actually about Ken thesis. Yeah. But there's a reason, which is that the Kens or ken specifically the ryan gosling ken loves barbie like romantically and wants Mm -hmm. her to spend the night even though he doesn't know what that would mean because they don't have parts but Mm -hmm. whatever um barbie is asexual right she's she's not she has no desire she has no desire of her own she's not she's not even asexual because that suggests options in the world she's just this kind of like object who's admired and you know, she's leered at in the real world. She's admired in the Barbie world, but Ken's have desire, right? Romantic, sexual, whatever Barbies don't. And that's true at the beginning of the movie, middle of the movie, end of the movie. It doesn't matter where in the movie you are. Is that you, to me, that seems both like it, it is, it is a case for this is actually a movie about Ken But it's also a case for like, maybe this isn't the most feminist movie of all time after all.
0: Yeah. And I like, you know, I was thinking about that as like, oh, this is how women, this is how girls play with Barbies. Right. Girls play with with Barbies where there's a bunch of Barbies on their own and they can do everything. And the only reason why Ken exists is because, you know, sometimes Barbie's in a relationship. Right. Ken was intended originally intended as the brother, but he's not the brother. He is clearly ends up being the the love interest. But. You know, girls don't need love interests, but um, when the boys love hold up. But when boys are introduced into the play okay. environment, they are existing just purely as the love interest. Yes,
2: and that um, makes sense, but that's a, not what this is about in the movie. What I'm saying is that the Ken is not a love interest to Barbie. Barbie is the love interest to Ken.
0: Correct. Yes.
2: And uh, and I think um, that this this what struck me. Maybe this is where we actually are going to agree to agree. Sure. Must be yeah. I think that the Barbie movie is very much, and I think this has been pointed out by other critics as well, it is kind of a throwback to this like 2017-ish moment in feminism where the sort of like, I don't have any need for men type of feminism, where that's supposed mm-hmm. to be this kind of rallying cry. And and where any other, like you say, any other distinctions that don't have to do with gender effectively don't matter the only things that exist are you know some people are men some are women there's only patriarchy there's no whatever sex is there's sexism. Yeah. there's no homophobia transphobia racism but again I think ableism that whatever none of that exists in this world and i think the idea of having a movie that's solely about sexism to the point where if you have margot robbie as the stand in for women that's not intersectional to put it very very mildly um yeah I don't know, but it was enjoyable to watch. I mean, like the the visuals, the paint is nice. All that the way that, like the
0: fact that that it was interesting. You know, uh, to bring back, I was saying Fat Barbie, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I actually read this and I studied. I, I, I looked it up a bit. I did my journalistic. Due diligence. Um, fat Barbies do sell much poor poorly, much more poorly than regular Barbies. As do all the other, like wheelchair Barbie and stuff like that. Correct. Um, they are around. They are bought often by parents trying to, you know, diversify their kids and 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 to add those things. There was a whole fascinating article in Psychology Today uh, about you know why girls are rejecting the new curvy Barbie um, and that there is something inherent about wanting the stereotypical look of Barbie, and so that's. It's kind of why Barbie uh, – in Barbie world, it is filled with stereotypical Barbies. Well, you say there's something
2: inherent. I don't know if, if there's something inherent. I think there's something that's what's valorized in the culture already. And by the time a girl is at the age where she would want a Barbie, she already well, has –
0: Well, yeah. His. So you know, to, to pull out a quote from this piece, right? They did a, they did a, a Barbie-focused study where they investigated how an ethnically diverse sample of girls between the ages of 3 and 10 – Um, would respond to the new Barbie body shapes. Each girl was presented with four Barbies in random order... Curvy Barbie had a slightly rounded stomach, thicker legs, no thigh gap, but the term curvy is a bit misleading. While not the emaciated looking like the original Barbie, she's still, she's still quite thin, like the US size four or six, right? And, and going on, and anyways, they asked the, reach, the, the, the re- girls to point to the Barbie she thought was happy, smart, has friends, pretty, helps others, and then sad, not smart, has no friends, not pretty, and mean. And basically, girls were clearly biased in favor of the thinnest bodies. Um, and this is as young as like three, so, yeah, there's something there, and I think that the Barbie world is there to reflect what the Barbie world of the real world is, and I think that that's what was going on there and the dangers of what happens there. And I think Ken is the easiest one to work with because of the male-female dynamic, the gender, the romance, the stuff like that, um, but this film could have easily happened with uh, weird Barbie as the protagonist or fat Barbie as the protagonist, Um they you think never, so? Yeah, I think so. They oh, I never don't think, sold I don't think so. They never sold Zaftig Barbie, right? That They never of, like, sold the
2: <laughs> Zaftig Barbie would have been Remember was um, there were you around right.
0: in that moment when like it was empowering to say I'm not fat, I'm Zaftig, especially in the Jewish world? No. And like for like a minute I was not like, there no, for no, that no, moment. I no, not That's the I, empowering thing to do and Zaftig just means juicy. You know that?
2: No, I didn't. Okay, I don't know what it means. It comes from really? the Yiddish juicy. world.
0: Zaft is, is juice, and so Zaftig okay. means juicy. And That so...
2: seems so like Zaftig couture.
0: Sure, yes. Except that's such an insider, sort of like you have to know Yiddish to know that. But
2: uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Okay, well, do you think that the fate of this movie that has made a billion dollars already, billion, depends on Bon High's endorsement or lack thereof?
0: Uh, I would hope so. I, I venture that that is not the case. Um, Right. Although maybe Greta Gerwig actually is a secret listener and is like, yes, finally somebody got it. Nobody else has gotten it. Avi, can you come on and produce Barbie two, um, the return of Ken, uh, with with a sort of rabbinic twist, please. Yes, of course. Of course. Given the fact that there are so many of these conversations around uh, body image and body positivity, we thought it would be a great idea to bring on Rabbi Minna Bromberg of Fat Torah uh, to talk about this within the Jewish world. And we will hear that interview right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. We've been talking about Barbie, and clearly this brings up ideas about body image, body positivity, as we saw in our previous segment. On that note, here's our conversation with Rabbi Minna Bromberg, who founded a website and an organization called Fat Torah. We spoke to her from her home in Israel. Rabbi Minna, welcome to Bonjour Chachai.
1: Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: Can you start by just uh, telling us uh, the genesis and uh, what you do with uh, Fat Torah?
1: Absolutely. So our mission really is bringing fat liberation to Jewish life. And I've been involved in fat liberation and fat activism for the last 30 years or so. Um, the, the fat liberation movement in an organizational form um, has existed uh, in North America since the late 60s. And um, I hopped on board when I decided as a 16-year-old that I was done dieting because I had been dieting since I was seven and I had really had enough of it. Um, and I was really very lucky to find uh, the fat liberation movement in the form, in the organizational form of um, the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, which is still the longest longest running um, fat acceptance and fat liberation organization. They've been around since 1969. And I realized a few years ago that even though fat activism was an important part of my own way that I thought of myself, that it wasn't something that I had incorporated in a large way into my rabbinate. And the impetus really came from a Hanukkah party that I attended with my then three-year-old daughter, where um, it was a Hanukkah party for her gun, for her preschool. And so there we were with, uh, you know, uh, several dozen, uh, several dozen preschool families and um, we were all dancing and, uh, I, you know, singing and dancing like you do at a Hanukkah party. And I'm someone who I would say, um, first of all, just to backtrack for a moment, um, I do use the word fat to refer to my own body and welcome anyone else who is ready to reclaim uh, a word that's often used as a slur, as a, to use it as a morally neutral way of referring to a particular range of body sizes in, in the vast continuum of, of human bodies. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I'm someone who is really blessed, I would say, to have a relationship with my own fat body, in which I am generally very comfortable dancing and singing in public. And um, uh, However, I was also nine months pregnant, basically. I gave birth the following week. Um, and uh, And so I wasn't actually feeling up for a lot of the dancing, especially not when my daughter asked me to jump with her. And so I realized that this sort of fact that I wasn't able to dance as I might usually be able to was uh, sort of sparking this huge internal conversation in my own head of, oh, my gosh, I hope everyone knows that I'm pregnant. And that's why I'm not dancing everywhere. And then this other voice sort of came in and said, that's kind of an ableist thing to say to yourself. Like, shouldn't any body be able to show up in a space and move or not move however it's able and feels like moving? And then this other voice came in and said, come on, why do you think people are judging you? Why would anybody be judging you? And another voice came in and said, because people judge fat people's bodies all the time. That's the reality that we that we know that we live with. So there I am with all of this internal dialogue going on. And the singing and dancing goes on for a little while. And then the song leader stops and we start eating sufganiyot, right? Delicious fried Hanukkah treats. And there we are enjoying our sufganiyot And then it's time to go back to dancing. And the song leader says, all right. Let's all get back to dancing unless you've gotten too fat from those sufganiyot. Um and it was such a sort of slap in the face of a reminder that the reason that I had all of this internal dialogue going on in the first place is because our bodies are constantly and casually denigrated publicly and that we are, you know, made made the object of things that of jokes that we're supposed to laugh at and think they're also funny. And so the first experience of that is the pain of, of hearing bodies like mine made fun of. The second piece of that is really being appalled that he would say this to these little three and four and five-year-olds who we know are already starting to judge their own bodies and other people's bodies as good and bad based on their size and also already starting to judge the foods that we eat as good or bad based on relatively arbitrary determinations that are rooted in a lot of white supremacy and classism. And um, and so the the next piece of it was really just um, feeling so sad at the way that anti-fat bias interrupts our ability to just enjoy our own traditions. Um, you know, that, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and this is, you know, this is an alignment with other ethnic and, um, and non-white foods that are sort yeah. of coded oh. as unhealthy. I was going
2: to ask to follow up on that about um, where white supremacy fits into this and specifically sort of Jews and race, Jews and whiteness, white Jews' relationship to whiteness in particular, perhaps, because um, I think that might be an interesting angle to unpack.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of what's clear about anti-fat bias, particularly in a North American context is that it is deeply, deeply intertwined with white supremacy, right? That when we see this rise of uh, a desire for thinness, um, particularly in the late 19th century, that it's very much tied with ideas about whiteness and particularly about white femininity. Um, and you see um, th- there's an important book called Fearing the Black Body by an author named, by a sociologist named Sabrina Strings, it really looks at the history of how fat phobia is rooted in anti-Black racism, but she also looks at the way that immigrant bodies are sort of stereotyped as fat, including Jewish bodies. Um, in that case, bodies of Jews that sort of would become white. Um, so certainly when we're talking about Jewish food ways, right, that are still sort of coded as as ethnic, that are still sort of subject to... Um, denigrating ideas about um, about foods as dirty or unclean or healthy or unhealthy. Certainly, there are all kinds of um, questions about um, about Jews and race. And obviously, you know, Jews come in all in, in lots of different races. So fat Jews who are also black or also Jews of color are dealing with the ways that um, that anti-fat bias and racism intersect.
0: Your story and uh, and what you just mentioned really uh, brings to mind in in my mind that the paradox of living in the Jewish community, where on the one hand, um, there is this like SS mein kind right eat eat because you know we're we're often children or grandchildren of uh, people of the Depression, people who were uh, migrants, people who were um, running away from something, and always you know when there's food you eat it, and you, you never know when your next meal is going to be. Combined at the same time. And in the same moment, with the standards of beauty and the standards of thinness um, that exist, um, and that you see people that are often living in these in these moments. I think uh, I think of the holidays often as times when these things come to a head, right? Around Rosh Hashanah, around uh, Passover, where um, you know we have these huge meals, and you're expected to just, especially you know, I'm I'm half uh, Moroccan, and in the Moroccan community, you know, if you're not eating from every single dish, and there's 17 dishes on the table, right? There's a problem Problem there, you're, you're being a bad child, right? You're being a bad son you know, or a bad daughter, whatever it might be. Um, combine that with the notion that, that like, well, no, you have to be extremely thin for, you know, dating purposes or for whatever it's going to be. Um, how does that, how can we resolve that within the community?
1: I mean, I think that the easiest, quote unquote easiest, I would say easiest, the simplest way to resolve it, which is not easy at all, is to stop centralizing diet culture in, in our communities, um, I think that it's you know something that we've taken on as we've assimilated into whiteness in um, in North American culture um, that that we don't have to take on right that we can reject. Um, so I think that um, that again that's it's not easy, but you know so for example. When people ask me, you know, what's the one thing that we can do in our community to, you know, to to try to break away from anti-fat bias or to try to break away from diet culture? And I'll often say that though if there's only one thing that you're going to do, the thing that you should do is to stop complementing weight loss. Again, it's a very simple thing to do, but it's not a very easy thing to do because of how deeply we've centralized these biased ideas about what bodies ought to look like. Um, and the problem with complementing weight loss is um, A, that we don't know what the weight loss came from. So we don't know if what we're complementing is actually an eating disorder or some other form of mental illness that's causing or someone illness, to met for it, just or a physical, physical illness, illness you... um, or grief, right? We, we have no idea what it is that we're complementing. Um, and regardless of whether the weight loss is in fact desired, um, it's also what we know about the ways that bodies lose and gain weight from 70 years of research, uh, we know that in over 95% of cases, people gain back weight that they've lost in the pursuit of intentional weight loss. And so you're not only telling this person who you're complimenting, again, even if their weight loss was desired by them, you're not only telling them, you know what, I was judging you for your size before, Uh, You know, judging you negatively, which is what you're letting them know when you now judge them positively. Mm -hmm. But what you ought to know is that there's a 95 percent chance that they will gain the weight back. And so you're also, you know, sort of preemptively negatively judging them.
0: You look good now, but you won't later. (laughs)
1: Right. So that's that's just in the individual interaction. But I think also in a communal setting, even when we're having individual conversations, we're having that conversation in a way that everyone in earshot is subject to. Um, And so we're also, when we're Mm -hmm. complementing weight loss, making a general statement about the fact that we think that being thin is more valuable than being fat.
0: There's a a camp called uh, Eden Village, and they have this... Policy that's called uh, the no body yeah. talk policy. I yeah. don't know if you've heard of this or not, uh, you know, and you're not supposed to say like positive things, like even like nice hair, right. let alone like you look so thin. Um, how do we balance the difference between um, you know shaming somebody or saying that there is you know uh, there's this some this is something that you don't look as good and you could look be looking better and that that's a problem with um, you know beauty in general, and the p- potential um, for discussing beauty um, within society, within uh, a community, um, for accepting that somebody has a beauty standard, somebody has a different beauty standard. Um, how does that work within this uh, framing? Because um, I sometimes have a bit of a hard time thinking about that. So maybe you can help me and then we can uh, follow up.
1: Yeah. From, my, from my perspective, no body talk is a wonderful stepping stone, right? It's a great first step to deal with the rampant ways that we talk negatively about each other's bodies, or again, talk positively in ways that then reflect negatively on folks who don't fit that, whatever that standard is that we're complimenting. Um, Ideally, from my perspective, we would live in a culture where we would be able to have relationships with our own and with one another's bodies, where we would find ways of talking about our own and other people's bodies um, in ways that didn't reinforce bias.
0: So, you, you think that the no body talk is sort of like a, like, a, it's really not where we, we want to be. It's a first step. But ideally, we want to get to a point where it's not that we don't talk about bodies. It's that there are beautiful bodies and all bodies are beautiful to somebody in some way, in some meaningful way. And we should be able to talk about it without any of that stigma attached I think,
1: to think y- Yes, absolutely. I think part of what's tricky about fat phobia in particular is that it has this aspect that's all about sort of beauty and beauty standards and the way you look and then it has this aspect that's about accessibility and discrimination against fat people um that's not some that's not just about you know how people feel about their bodies right that's about not paying fat people the same thing that you pay their thin counterparts for the same labor right so just as sure. we know that there's a wage gap right between men and women um there's a wage gap between fat people and thin people and um fat people are paid less for the same labor right so and we know that there is discrimination in education right where um there was a, a study that came out a couple of years ago where the an identical essay was given to teachers to grade. Um and if the essay was attached to a picture of a fat student, it got a lower grade than if it was attached to a picture of a thin student. Right. So we have also these sort of just very um very ingrained um institutional forms of um of discrimination that um that I'm not sure that any amount of no body talk is really going to help
2: in the culture generally, what I've noticed, and a lot of people have noticed in the last few years, is there's less overt body shaming talk than there what used to be because it's a lot it's gone very euphemistic. People talk about wellness. people talk about getting stronger or whatever, not getting thinner. And I wonder how you um approached that because it seems like it's it's gotten pretty. It's it's kind of mainstream now to say, like, like the thing that happened with the Sufganio, like, that's awful, but I feel like it's more generally understood now that that would be an awful thing to say because it's, it's taboo in mainstream North American society to say that now. But then it hasn't been replaced by an end of fat phobia. So I was wondering, yeah, how you would address that.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the United States and I don't have data for Canada, I apologize. In the United States, the diet industry, like not even the wellness industry, which is bigger, but just the weight loss industry is a $72 billion industry. And so when the culture starts moving in a direction where it's, you know, realize it like coming to terms with the fact that intentional weight loss doesn't really work, it's not surprising that the industry would find ways to sort of catch up with that and start, you know, start framing things as wellness and start framing things as strength. Because We've realized that when you tell people it's a diet, they're not going to do it because they know that diets don't work. But somehow they haven't caught on to the fact that lifestyle change is actually just another word for a restrictive way of eating, which is the same as a diet. And so you see things sort of in the um, in the industry side of things, right, like Weight Watchers no longer calling itself Weight Watchers and changing its name to WW or, you know, Jenny Craig going out of business recently. But I, I agree with you that it's it's gone euphemistic. And I think, you know, as with anything that goes euphemistic, it ends up um, sort of papering over. Like, it's not the case that fat people are getting any more competent healthcare just because we use euphemisms instead of um, so, um, you know, or aren't facing the kinds of, you know, you're still getting fat people who have, you know, who are going to the doctor and, you know, saying I have pain in my stomach and it's, you know, not letting me eat. And the doctor saying, well, that actually could be good for you. And then it turns out that they have, you know, some horrible, horrible condition that's not letting them eat that should have been diagnosed, but was not diagnosed because the doctor thought it was a good thing for them to lose weight. Um. So um. you, so I don't think that any of that sort of euphemizing has, is that a word? I'm not sure, um, has led to sort of structural changes um, in how fat people are treated. Um, and I think it's largely, uh, you know, fueled by the desire of the wellness and weight loss industries to, um, to still make billions and billions of dollars. Um, and you also see, you know, you see pharmaceutical companies getting into it as well, right? So you have um, this big campaign against weight stigma, that's being funded right now by Novo Nordisk because they're hoping that if they can, you know, sort of frame obesity, quote unquote, as a disease that they can get more people to buy their weight loss drugs. Um, And so um, I I agree that it's absolutely sort of this, uh, the, you know, the sociologist in me wants to talk about, you know, when you, when you try to make a cultural shift, you know, the the hegemony will come and sort of readjust so that, um, so that the, folks in power are staying in power and that the folks who are making money off of um, other people's suffering will continue to be able to do that.
0: Um, where does the Torah come in? Where does the like, because uh, I mean, I'll be the first one to think that the Torah is probably filled with fat people. Um, probably many fat people that are considered beautiful, right? Shira shirim is replete with uh, beauty standards that are not our standards of beauty. Um, where do you see the intersection of Torah and, uh, you know, uh, anti-fat shaming?
1: So I think if we look at, um, I think absolutely, fatness generally in Torah, in Torah and Tanakh, Hebrew Bible more broadly, tends to be a positive thing, right? So we're given the blessings of the fatness of the land, right? And we're um, and absolutely, you're right that um, that Shir Hashirim has these beautiful descriptions, right? That your belly is like a heap of wheat, um, and your your pubic is a wine goblet, right? These wonderful images that we can. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some.
0: Public is the technical yes, term. Sorry, in that's,
1: that's translation into the vernacular. <laughs> um, um, I think that there are, and there are some instances where it's clear that um, a, a handful of instances where fatness is being criticized or ridiculed. Um, so, and and for my money, and this could be a whole other podcast on sort of you know textual analysis of fatness in Tanakh. Um, from from my perspective, those that ridicule or that criticism is coming from an association of fatness with abundance. And in this case of fatness with complacency about your own abundance. Um, right. So when you see, um, the, like the future people, Israel being, um, being criticized, um, for Yeshurun becoming fat, um, in, and kicking in Deuteronomy, it's clearly the sense that you have sort of forgotten how you got to your place of abundance. You're for, you've forgotten that it's God who gave you that abundance. Um, and there are a couple of other, um, again, just really a handful of, exam- of examples where fatness is um, is criticized or ridiculed. But in general, certainly, um, I find Torah to be a, a rich source of um, of body positive texts. I would also say that I think um, so. Uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, someone in a fat activist group that I'm in and Facebook that's not associated with um, with Judaism asked, you know, what are your what are your favorite fat liberation texts? Um, and, you know, there's all folks writing all kinds of interesting recent thing, you know, recent publications in the comments. And I commented Genesis 127, right, which is where we first hear, uh, which is where we hear that the human beings are created in the divine image. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think that there's also, you know, if we think of Torah as a process of engaging with the tradition rather than a specific set of texts, then we get, you know, even more opportunities for allowing that engagement with texts to be. A source of liberation:
0: you know, I keep going back to this idea of like the euphemism is uh, is fascinating, and the subjectivity like we we really have to embrace the fact that um, the objectivity of what it means, what fat means, what beautiful means um, isn't necessarily part of it is part of our culture, and it shouldn't be. and um, what I would add to that is that I don't think it's part of Jewish culture. Um, and it ever was, I think that, um, you know, it's, the Torah tells us to watch our health, but the Torah doesn't tell us how to watch our health or what that means. It just means to watch our health. Um, uh, one of my favorite passages in in the Talmud, actually, is uh, really speaks directly to this, really very much so, where, where you have this discussion of, like, how should one dance before the bride, right? And then the the, the, Torah, the Talmud then answers and says, well, the bride and her entourage, and that's what you do. You you dance with the bride and the entourage. Um, and Shammai asks this well, – they ask this question, right? This question is well, what if the bride is not beautiful? And Shammai says, well, that's a problem, right? And Hillel goes and says, no, the the nature of a bride being beautiful is that you don't have to see the bride as beautiful. You have to see, you have to recognize that the groom sees the bride as beautiful. Otherwise they would not be getting married. Um, And this is to me the key to unlocking all of Hill and Shammai is that Shammai is always, uh, Shammai tends to always be objective and Hillel tends to always go to the subjective, which is the human-centered approach of it. And what you're asking for or um, in fact, or it sounds like, is to really argue for a human-centered approach and to say, um, this is what the person is. This is who the person is. This is what the person wants. And um, stop asking or making demands of an individual.
1: Absolutely, And I think, you know, Um, we often sort of borrow from the disability justice movement, the, the the, the phrase, nothing about us without us, right? That's so often, you know, what's happening around sort of defining what fatness is and what fat people are um is happening um by others. The other thing I just want to come back to um when you say you know the Torah tells us to watch our health if i if i if i'm thinking of the same reference that you are right that there's this verse in Deuteronomy about um v'nishmatem od right? that you that you really yep. need to sort of take care of yourself. And what's amazing to me about this first of all is that it's not clear that it's talking about physical health at the to the exclusion of mental and spiritual well-being. Um, that's one piece. The sure. other piece is that if you look at the context of the verse, it's specifically saying mm-hmm. that you should take care of yourself.
0: <laughs> yes, lest
1: you make a divine image, like lest you make an image of the divine, lest you make an idol, basically, that looks like any mm-hmm. particular man or woman. And so um, that phrase that, you know, that, that people quote to me all the time, right, of, well, what about, you know, what about this principle in Torah? And I tell them, well, it's actually specifically in the context of not creating an idol out of a particular body type.
0: That's fascinating. You know, that's my bar mitzvah portion, and I never really saw that outside of the, you know, the Yeah, and way. so when, really those, right, when
1: those two clash, as with any, right, like, in any way that we're sort of making... Um, certainly halakhic Jewish legal decisions, right, is about when, um, when principles are clashing with each other, what do we do? Um, and so in those verses, right, where you have this principle of taking good care of yourself and you have this principle of not worshiping things that aren't God, um, that for me, uh, diet culture really is asking us to worship what is not God, right, to worship a particular um, physical form. Um, and so to me, it's clear that when those clash with each other, that we should really favor not doing idolatry.
0: Beautiful. Um, thank you for sharing all of this Fat Torah. Um, and uh, if people want to uh, check out more of it, uh, go to fattorah.org, uh, F-A-T-T-O-R-A-H.org. Rabbi Minna Bromberg, thank you so much for being on Moshe Chai.
2: Thank you so much. This was so interesting.
1: Thank you. Beth David
0: Hebrew School is now accepting new students. One of Toronto's most dynamic, egalitarian, conservative congregations is offering personalized Hebrew lessons, hands-on learning, exciting field trips, and small group activities, all with a hot dinner included. This is Jewish exploration that will last your children a lifetime. Classes run weekly on Monday nights from 5 to 7.15 p.m. starting September 18th. To learn more and enroll, visit bethdavid.com or email adina, that's A-D-I-N-A, at bethdavid.com. And now it's time for our Nachas of the Week. Phoebe, what's your Nachas?
2: All right. So my Nachas is going to stay a bit on theme, and it's an article by my Feminine Chaos podcast co-host and friend Kat Rosenfield uh, called Unraveling the Secrets of the Barbie-Verse. So it's, like, about the Barbie movie, but from a quantum theory lens. And she actually speaks to a physicist about this, um, about, like, the Barbie world's connection to the real world. Like, if one girl plays... Is it one girl plays with one Barbie, and that alters the Barbie world? But how does that work? What's the ratio of Barbies to uh, people? It's super interesting, and it's just, like, this, like, whoa kind of scientific take on the Barbie movie, which is different from all of the kind of um culture wars and I'm, you know, or just I'm culture tapes on this. it. I I um, cannot wait to go read this. It's it's on slate, it's amazing. Um it blew my mind, um, and I cannot recommend that highly enough. So Avi, what's your nahas
0: Phoebe, you like all things British. Uh, I assume you like Brit pop as well.
2: Sure. Yeah.
0: Um are you a are you a fan of Blur?
2: Yeah, Blur is
0: great. Okay, so I don't know if you know, Blur came out with an album recently uh, called "The Ballad." The Ballad of Darren, hmm. um, and there is a song on the Ballad of Darren called "The Rabbi." What? Yeah. Um, and hold on, hold on, because I th- I'd originally thought that that was going to be the end of that story. And I thought this is a cool thing, and we'll go out on this. Like, oh, there's a cool blur song called The Rabbi. And I looked at the lyrics, and it seemed kind of generic but interesting. Um, And I did a deeper dive into this song and figuring out what was going on. And it turns out that there's a whole story behind it that CBC partially uncovered, and I'm more uncovering a little bit now. and CBC uncovered this back in 2019. Uh, sorry, in 20. CBC originally aired this piece on Q in 2021. It was an interview with Damon Albarn where he mentions um, this rabbi that he met on a plane who. Um, he had an amazing conversation with and left him profoundly impacted and clearly this song is a result of that conversation um and no hey, hold on it gets better so this is Q on CBC and it turns out that this rabbi is he as he was saying I couldn't remember the rabbi's name I need help figuring it out uh we have figured this out um because he said all he knew about her was that she was an older rabbi that was uh originally from Winnipeg but she had moved to Vancouver um and the internet has figured out that this is Canadian Rabbi Roki Bernstein. Wow,
2: Um, incredible. And so
0: there is a Britpop, and if you listen to the interview on Q when he talks about certain things, um, the lyrics clearly match up with um, the intent of what the relationship and the conversation that they had. So I'm guessing that by now they have some sort of relationship. They have established some sort of a friendship, maybe not. Uh, I actually reached out to her. I don't know if I will ever hear back from her uh, or not. Um, But there is a song about a canadian rabbi on blur's okay. most recent if album she, that is my if she gets of back to you
2: we need to have her on <laughs> well um, of course <laughs> that is incredible it's like i'm thinking about when people try to figure out which boy taylor swift is singing about but it's like which rabbi is damon albert <laughs> singing
0: about? yeah it's like
2: i love it i love it it's great
0: so so that is my novice for this week Bibi, it's so great to be back, really, and great to have this conversation as always.
2: Avi is such fun as always, yes.
0: Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending August 19th, Shabbat Parashat Shoftim. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca/slash Bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is always one of the best ways we Get new listeners, and as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca Jewish comedy legend Modi and Hasidic rapper Nissim Black are coming to Toronto to perform live at UJA's campaign launch on September 7th. Visit JewishToronto.com to get your tickets today. Don't miss Modi and Nissim Black on September 7th. Go to JewishToronto.com for your ticket today.